Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Undercast. We gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film stays course. This week's film is Revenge of the Green Dragons, uh, which is uh, sort of a follow-up film to Infernal Affairs, which was followed up by The Departed, and then it was followed up by Revenge of the Green Dragons, if you can... Pick up what I'm laying down. And, I cannot. Uh, I think it shouldn't be uttered in the same breath as those other two films. No, it, it definitely should not. Well, he directed one of them. We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Yeah. We'll explain the, the lineage of this film. So, yeah. It, 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 of course, Daisy executively produced this one. You don't hear me mentioning that. Sometimes the apple rolls some way from the tree. It does indeed. But we will be dealing with that in just a moment. But let's go ahead and identify the disembodied voices speaking to your brain across the way, sir. Who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and when you're a podcaster, a recording session can seem like a week. That's very, very true. To my left, sir, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and I did not pull a quote from this movie. And my name is Dustin Sells, and neither did I. I yeah, don't, I don't, uh, don't... Was it in protest, Dalton? I didn't want to say any of Ray Liotta's really gross racist lines, and all the other lines are just too sad and about just things I didn't want to talk about. Fair enough. Now, if you're tuning into this show for the very first time, let's warn you right now. This is a spoiler-filled show uh, because we do analysis, not review. But that being said, we do provide the briefest reprieve from those things spoiler by doing this. We give a synopsis, spoiler-free. We do a uh, set of thumbs-up, thumbs-down reviews, spoiler-free. We play a game, mild maybe spoilers, of this film and films in its orbit. And then we get down to business, and that's when spoilers happen like crazy. Crazy. So you have been warned. That's how it's going to go down without any further ado. Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema. Let's go ahead and hear that synopsis of Revenge of the Green Dragons. Two best friends rise through the ranks of New York's Chinese underworld in the 1980s. Yeah, that happens. So it's got immigration stuff. It's got uh, crime stuff. It's got Chinese stuff. It's got... Mahjong. Mahjong, um, often. And, yeah. All right, well... um Yep. Okay. It's all the notes. Uh, some Chinese restaurants. Um, well, we're going to talk about that. Let's go ahead and uh, break down that lineage question, though, for the dear listener as to why okay. you would pick this movie at random. Because if it were not of its lineage, it would be in that long, wide selection of sort of thrillers, you know, that you might see in a streaming service listed about, oh, I don't know, selection number 174. Uh, yep. And uh, why it is uh, a little bit more elevated that we might have this conversation. Well, uh, I think the two things that stand out uh, for us primarily is well, obvious genre film, but uh, it is co-directed by Andrew Lau of Infernal Affairs. Um, this is his first uh, co-directed work uh, in English language, um, and also is put out by A24, mm -hmm. um, whom we love before they really took off. Uh, as a studio, they were mainly just picking up films for distribution at that point. And um, still primarily their business model. Yeah. I think they've just got a little bit more money to throw around at this yeah. point. Yeah. Uh, but I think primarily for us, you know, those are two, the two things that really stood out uh, in choosing this film uh, for the show is is kind of like the crime genre thing. Uh, but also A24 is a, a studio that we is one to watch. And they've kind of got this massive reputation now uh, that they can't miss. And so I think it's interesting to go back into those roots to see kind of their earlier days and what they were picking and distributing at the time. Yeah. And then again, obviously, it's got that pedigree from Martin Scorsese, who uh, presumably, it, you know, in thanks to Andrew Lau for, um, you know, letting him adapt Infernal Affairs, 
Uh, there is that uh, Martin Scorsese thrown around the clout that comes with his name to, to help him get the movie made, presumably. Um, so, yeah, that, that is the lineage of the film in question, Dustin. All right. So let's see how close that apple is to the tree. I go to you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Let's hear your thumbs up, thumbs down review of Revenge of the Green Dragons. It's not good. I uh, don't really care for it, especially following up last week's Fallen Angels, which is, you know, this great Wong Kar Wai film, this, this really interesting piece of Hong Kong cinema. Uh, and then we get this film by a Hong Kong filmmaker uh, uh, doing work in the United States, uh, specifically this you know period piece in New York. And I just, I, I see what the film's going for. It's trying to hit these notes of melodrama, right? It's, it's kind of this, this genre crime movie. The only problem is it's based off of a real thing that happened. And the things that happened are bad. They're real bad. And I don't mean just like, you know, a bunch of people got shot. I mean, people got tortured. People were sexually assaulted. Uh, children were shat on. It was a lot of bad stuff. And I, I get the kind of gritty uh, gang- gangsters as uh, genre thing that they're going for. And there's another film that I think does that a lot better. I'll talk about later in the show. But I... I see what they're going for. I think the subject matter is, frankly, too serious for the kind of goofy genre film they want to do. Uh, I I think, uh, you know, we were talking about this off air, especially, you know, in the weeks coming out after uh, Crazy Rich Asians has been this really kind of this big blockbuster uh, and has really been talked about for not just talking about, uh, you know, a studio film with Asian faces, but specifically Asian-American faces and specifically telling an Asian-American story and how the experience of being an Asian American is kind of singular and different from, you know, growing up in China or uh, Hong Kong or Singapore, you know, throughout those parts of Southeast Asia and watching this film that doesn't really have that specificity that, you know, and again, I've unfortunately not got to catch up with crazy rich Asians yet, but um, by all accounts, there's this kind of great specificity to that film. And there doesn't seem to be any specificity here, right? I think Andrew Lau is using things that he knows. He's, he, he's aware of Chinatowns existing in major metropolises, and that's all we're getting, though. It's, it is a, a Chinatown kind of flavor on top of a pretty rote story. There's, I mean, there are kind of a few moments, you know, the, the kids are watching uh, the, the Tiananmen Square protests on TV because obviously this takes place in the late 80s and early 90s. So they're seeing that going on back home. Um, and so, there's, so there are some moments where they kind of try to tie things in and, and show that, that diaspora from China and from Hong Kong that's kind of happening in the United States. But I just – it doesn't feel like it's handled with much care. And I don't feel like I'm, I'm ever given cause to really feel – sad for these characters who so many terrible things happen to. I mean, the two kids in this movie, I should really be feeling for them. I should be feeling for this brotherly relationship that they have. Uh, Sonny and, and Steven are the two main characters' names. And I should really be feeling for them in this weird relationship they have with Paul, who's kind of this this head gangster that's kind of mentoring them. And I don't feel anything. I don't feel anything at a single point in this film other than disgusted. Uh, when things that I think are frankly just a little too upsetting happen. Um, and that's not good. Uh, now, visually, I think there's some interesting things going on. It does have a, a pretty nice crime movie sheen to it. It's it's pretty standard crime genre look that it's going for, but it looks good. I think some editing choices are really kind of cool, some real interesting fades. Uh, the editor, Michelle Tosaro, I think is her name, uh, has worked a lot on um, House of Cards, uh, done a lot of Netflix work, um, but, you know, some pretty prestige genre stuff for television. Um, so I really like what's going on there um, from her, but, you know, 
style and visual alone can't save a film unless it's doing some pretty inventive visuals and just okay visuals are not going to elevate something like this. So, uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of it. And I think we'll kind of tease that out more in analysis. All right. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Dalton Stewart, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you in terms of thumbs up, thumbs down review of revenge of the green dragons? Um, I think I'm a little more positive on it than Dalton, but mostly because I'm, I'm a little more indifferent. I, I, I really wasn't upset by the film. I didn't know the history. I didn't know that it was based on true story or things like that nature. And I don't know a whole lot. Yeah. I just know that it was based on a very little. There's a big yeah. New Yorker article when this stuff first happened, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and so I didn't really have that kind of going into it. Um, I, I, I do like the style. I like the direction. Um, a lot of Lowell's kind of uh, stylistic flares are there. The, uh, the the slow motion, the cuts to freeze frame, the uh, the shots in black and white that are just real brief, just like a clip in black and white, then right back to business, mm-hmm. um, which we see a lot of that in Infernal Affairs as well. Yeah. So those are a lot of his kind of uh, Hallmark cards. I, I like that style. Uh, it adds a little something to this film, uh, but that's a, about what all it adds, I think. Um I think to Dalton's point, I think it's short. I, th- I think it could have used another 30 minutes. Uh, this is just over 90. Um, and, you know, some of the, the technical editing is cool, but the story editing is a little off. Like, there's a lot of weird yes. jumps or a lot of weird uh, – it, it feels like we've lost time, uh, particularly at the third act. Um, there's a big set piece moment, character moment. Um, and from what I can tell, there's, like, a prolonged lapse of time, uh, but a character – does something that kind of uh, seems like it should have happened sooner. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say too much because I don't want to get into spoilers. Um, I feel like the very, very ending of this film is just unnecessarily there. Like that seems like a choice because of the way The Departed plays uh, more so than anything. A little bit. And for me, I think the big thing here is I I think it's a film that got lost in translation. I feel like it's a film uh, from an international director who was making a film for an audience he thought he knew what they wanted. Yes. And so we have all this gratuitous violence, this gratuitous, you know, sex or uh, sexual assault, those types of very, very um, enraging and powerful uh, moments that just seem way too much here. Um, and and that ending, I think that as well, kind of all ties into um, he misread. Instead of making a natural, a film that felt more natural or maybe in the vein of the stuff uh, he had worked on previously, um it seems like he was making something for what he thought the audience was going to want. And I think that's where this gets caught up is it, it's trying to check all these boxes that it doesn't necessarily need to fit into. Um, and I think that's what really hurts it. I, I, I like the cast. Uh, I love, uh, Sonny. I think he's great. Um, I, I like he, him a lot. He's really fantastic. Yeah. I like that performance quite a bit. Uh, the actor is, uh, Justin Chan. Yeah. Yeah. He's good. He's and real good. I really wanted more from uh, – I'm going to have to look up her name real quick. Um, she's the kind of uh, matriarch of this entire – Oh, the snakehead? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I really kind of wanted more of her. Uh, I feel like there's a lot there that could have played out rather than the stuff – I mean, Paul seems to be the focal point, but, I mean, a lot of it's coming from her down. Like, she's yeah. kind of the matriarch of this organization, this operation, and we don't really get any play with that except for that's who Leota keeps going to to try and end this. Like – so she's obviously some somewhere up on the ladder, right? Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, she she is the one responsible for bringing these kids into the yeah. states, and her story is super interesting. You're right, Arthur. So I, I feel like it just misses a lot of things. I think it tries to hit stuff that it shouldn't try to hit or doesn't need to hit, and uh, it's just a mess uh, because of all of that. Okay. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mister Arthur Gordon. Um, I am with you guys insofar as it is. 
not good in terms of your expectations. But I don't know that it isn't playing around with expectations just a little bit. It, it feels to me like it is very much, oh, this is what you want, and this is what's – it's sort of like doing – this is your standard crime drama that you are watching forever in terms of genre film, and this is all that behind-the-scenes stuff where, you know, the guy you, you see the shot of the guy, and he's got, like, you know, a little bit of dark smudging under his eye from the black eye, and he's under a light, and he's hanging from his thumbs or whatever. But we're actually going to show you the character hanging from their thumbs, getting beat this is this is what you've been loving, and this is how ugly this has been off camera. I, and I, I see that. I see that aspect of it. I just don't – I think it still tries to make those scenes feel very genre-y in, in a right. way that doesn't totally work. But it, I get what you're saying. It feels more like exploitation than nuance. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I think it is sort of like it injecting the exploitation aspects that have been sort of censored or for whatever whether, for whatever reason judiciously edited you know, and alighted from the production and still playing up that, again, very 40 sense of melodrama and care and love that sort of, you know, the, between two different characters, it's unearned. Yeah. But it's just what you do. And then all so the sort of audience expectations as this is a follow-up to The Departed or Infernal Affairs to do what you wanted. But, well, we'll still talk more about it's that later. It's de-romanticizing gangsters is what you're getting Yeah, at. I think so. I, I, I can see that that might be what's being gone for. I don't think it works. But I see I see why you would say that. It's de-romanticizing gangsters and also de-romanticizing the crime film itself. It's sort yeah. of a deconstructive move there with that. And, okay. And, and, and although, again, I don't love it um, because it isn't that – it's mostly just obnoxiously violent and uh, upsetting and then obnoxiously melodramatic. And, mm-hmm. and and seeing those two things together, you realize, oh, we've got to have one or the other. It's sort of like that old discussion of pornography uh, this film does uh, in, insofar as you can't have interesting story and characters and then full out, you know – clinical sort of depictions of sexuality it just it doesn't work you got to either have one or the other it's either uh you know i'm the plumber i'm showing up i got some pipes you can clean or it's going to be i'm the plumber and this is my sad tale yes and i'm sorry <laughs> and i'm i am the housewife this is my sad tale you can't have fun. yeah yeah and and, the, and that sex has to sort of happen off screen right yeah and, and what it does though i will say <laughs> disobedience from this year i think does a pretty good job of getting to have its cake and eat it too well, <laughs> that movie gets it's on Prime. I want to watch it. Too damn sexy, in a very in in a very interesting way. But uh, it, it's doing that. It's, it's committing that sort of sin, uh, cinematic, you know, narrative sin. And I think perhaps it's doing so intentionally. And as a result, it doesn't work. But maybe that's sort of also the goal. I get what you're saying. You I know? do. And so I don't like. I I don't enjoy it. You only get so many points for having a really interesting goal right. if you fall this short of your goal. Yeah, and so, I mean, again, in, in terms of, like, you know, my experience of the movie, it's like, okay, I couldn't wait for it to be over. I'm kind of with Arthur. The, the thing about The Departed that really, really works is that it is uh, very much this in-depth, novelistic sort of character drama, and this film is not doing that. And, and again, that's the thing that you want. You want this sort of long, sprawling, and yeah. vested story. And what it does is the short, lean 90, you know, 90-minute uh, just beat-em-up, shoot-em-up kind of cop movie – 
Uh, well, in this case, gangster movie. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, more close to Mean Streets if we're gonna, than The Departed. If we're talking Martin Scorsese, right? Well, yeah, but I don't think it's close to Scorsese at all. I it's thought not. more of Goodfellas. I mean, this film plays a lot yeah, more like Goodfellas yeah, than it does anything I, else. I meant purely in terms of character archetypes. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, I mean, it, it plays much more like uh, The Killing. Uh, you know that that uh, old Kubrick film. Is it Kubrick? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with uh, what's his name, the, the McCluskey from uh, The Godfather. I know you're talking Sterling about. Hayden Sterling. Uh, his name was going to come to me eventually, but it, it plays more like that. You know, but all the sort of pentapoma sexuality in that film, all the sort of off-screen violence, all the sort of off-screen, you know, sort of sexual tension between different characters, all of that stuff's off-screen, and it's sort of melodramatically played on screen and the violence itself doesn't occur and so what it does is it doesn't develop the characters like that movie does but it also plays up all that violence and it's like this is an ugly thing and you know this is the way in which uh, this genre film i find it to be sort of a genre commentary that's interesting but it's not enough to make it fun and it was not because one or the other is fun again i guess the porn illustration sort of works in this way one or the other is fun but doing both is just really really kind of upsetting and uh, that's sort of my reaction to this film so there you go dear listener our biases are generally not really, but maybe. I, I think is how I would characterize it. And uh, we're going to move on, though, and let you be part of the conversation. Uh, and you can do that via those magical means that we all know as social media Dalton, Say the words. Hi, it's that time of the show once again, social media corner. Uh, don't do it. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, in all seriousness, don't do it. Okay, if you really want to, you can find us on Twitter. That's at good underscore trash. Uh, we are on Facebook.com. That is Facebook.com forward slash GTM. Uh, we definitely use Facebook a lot less than we use Twitter. So uh, if you're really, really wanting to keep an eye on us, probably going to do it at Twitter at good underscore trash where you can find drops for this show, drops for The Praise Down with Heath and Alex, drops for uh, Dustin's new projects, A Bad Feeling About This, where he and his son, uh, who is now 14, 14. 14. Watch R-rated movies, uh, essentially. And Dustin and him work through the things that he is just now old enough to watch. It's an interesting They premise. work through the things Dustin can't work through himself. That's right. Also uh, that. Dustin's also doing a Dracula podcast called The Borgo Cast, which I am assured is a reference to the novel and a funny one. It is. Uh, Both of those things. So that's where you can find what we're doing. Good. Uh, do you do that? Good underscore trash on twitter uh again we also try to just have fun ask you about what you're watching and stuff on there so it's a good time we try to keep it light and not bum me out too much because you know twitter <laughs> if you don't want to be involved in social media in any capacity we cannot blame you and in fact give you a big high five you can send us an email that's good trash genrecast at gmail.com for that long form feedback we also really would appreciate it if you would rate review and subscribe to the show however you put this in your ears it does a lot for our visibility and helps us uh you know get out to more eyeballs uh the best way to get us out to more eyeballs though um, just tell somebody you know. Word of mouth is always a great way to spread things. Uh, infect your friends. Put this dumb podcast in their ear. Incept them into being our friends, too. That's the nicest thing you could do for us. Last but certainly not least, if you want to contribute financially, you want to help us keep the lights on, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM where you can find all sorts of fun bonus content that we produce just for you. And um, we get a little naughty over there because you paid us. Okay, thank you very much for that. I, naughty? Yeah. That's because it's good trash nights. Nice. You got to go, You got to Hey, you're going to throw some dollars. You want to find out what happens over there. Sorry. <laughs> All right. But we're not going to talk about it anymore. Singles only. All That's right. right. Well, thanks for that. I believe now it's time to play the game. Where? 
two triple A. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing, what is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. And we're back with this week's game, um, fiction, <laughs> what is it? Um, this week's game is depictions of board and or card games in film that you find interesting. Brought to you by Revenge of the Green Dragons. Revenge of the Green Dragons. You can tell it's about Chinese people because there's a lot of mahjong being played. And so, yeah, there is a, a lot of mahjong in this film. And there is. usually to advance either plot or character or both. And so we're just going to kind of look at other interesting times that cards boards what have you are deployed in cinema and television and just kind of talk about that a little and bit just, yeah games we we, we like we were, were at least we're interested in you were interested in the depiction of yeah. those games um i'll go ahead and start us off with uh my very first pick which is going to be texas hold'em uh, or poker in general i think poker writ large uh, obviously there's poker movies like rounders which we've talked about on the show but i think in um in film when you have poker at play there's often a lot being told to you about characters, how they bet, you know, and you don't much like uh, Mahjong. You don't really need to know how the game is played to find interest in those scenes. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's the most effective use of poker and film is are those those times it's deployed when you don't really need to know the game. I think Rounders is a great example of that, actually. That was one of the things that I know we all liked about that movie. Uh, but I'm going to go with Casino Royale, I think, is an example that I really like. Yeah. Uh, I, I think the the card-playing scenes in that film uh, with Daniel Craig and Mads Mikkelsen, uh, Jeffrey Wright, and Ava Green, I mean, all four of them are kind of featured prominently in those those poker scenes. Um but, but I, I think there's a lot revealed to you about James Bond in, in those scenes, about the villain. Um, and again, it just keeps the stakes high and the tension high, right? For an action film, that's why poker shows up in cowboy movies and spy movies. It's a good way to kind of ratchet up the tension without having to rely too much on physical violence for your action. Uh, and so that's that's going to be my first pick is poker. Poker is the first pick from Mr. Dalton Stewart. My first pick is going to be also a card game used frequently in the Wild West, uh, particularly in Wyatt Earp and Tombstone, uh, but it's referred to in lots of places. It's a game called Pharaoh. I don't know anything about Pharaoh, mm-hmm. but what I do know is that poker is an honest trade, but only fools buck the tigers because the odds are always on the house because that's what Doc Holliday says. And Val Kilmer taught you that. And Val Kilmer teaches me many things. Um, many things. Did he teach you about Harry Hole? He did not. <laughs> oh, no. It's awful. We'll never forget the snowman. Uh, never, never forget. Uh, that way we don't repeat our past mistakes. Nope, nope we're not doing that again. That's what we learned from history. But Pharaoh, I don't, I don't, again, it, it's a gambling sort of game. It looks very Blackjack-esque. It's that world setting, though. Of, right. You don't really know the Old West, and this kind of makes gives that level of remove, right? Right. Playing card games you know in the Old West makes it feel a little bit too at home. Making it feel a little bit more alien, I think, is really effective. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a very 19th century game. I was watching some Penny Dreadful not very long ago. And good, good show. I like Penny Dreadful a lot. And, I knew you would. Well, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, that and I'm probably going to do a review of it for the Borgo cast. And oh, so cool. that's part of the work Yep. There. I mean, you got you got a lot of episodes to watch before I you get know, to Dracula. I know. I know. I'm really well, – anyway, that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but they are talking about Pharaoh during um, that as well. So it's not just a this side of the pond kind of game. It's very much a – uh, kind of a high class, you know, kind of parlor slash uh, gambling sort of game, and I like. I just 
that's cool. And it does sort of give you that sense of remove because I don't know anybody who plays Pharaoh. I, I assume you use a regular 52 card deck. I didn't Google it because I don't care because that's the point is that it's interesting <laughs> and it's well made. Fair enough. You know, so that's my first selection. So we've got poker. We've got Pharaoh. Number first from you, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I'm going to say uh, chess and then specifically in uh, chess is obviously a, a great symbol. You're dealing with logic or battles or kind of one upsmanship. Uh, but I particularly like its use in Independence Day. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a fun little thing that they put out kind of early on when uh, – Goldblum's father plays uh, chess in the park uh, with the other elderly people uh, because that's what elderly men in cities do. Apparently, yeah. Um, when your when your wife passes away and your son's grown and doesn't call you, you go play chess with other sad bastards. And uh, you know what? There, there can't be many lives worse uh, than that. I like it. Uh, but anyway, it's it's a fun little analogy that kind of plays into this game of cat and mouse or back and forth that they're having with the invading uh, alien groups and. Uh, it's just a neat little, I think, use of that uh, to kind of uh, reinforce some of the themes at play, uh, get us some fun character moments between Goldblum and his, uh, his dad. Some of the best scenes in the movie, I think. Yeah, they, they, have a, they have a really great chemistry. Uh, mm-hmm. They get to play back and forth really well. Uh, so I'm gonna, I'm, I, that's going to be my first uh, example. I would like very much to be good at chess. I know how to play chess. But, right. But I just the time. I know the moves. I can probably beat like a five-year-old, uh, but anybody that's got skill or uh experience uh, beyond what I've got. I'm, I'm dead. I'm yeah. doomed. I could I, teach a child to play it and, yep. and beat them until they were good enough to beat me, and that's about as good as I no. could possibly be. Well, that's what I did to my kids. Um, yeah. And I'm like, okay, we're not going to play anymore. Uh, I, I do love you know the depiction in Independence Day. I do love the chess depiction in The Wire as well when, uh, when D'Angelo Barksdale explains yes. sort of the drug world. Like, here's the king, here's the queen, you know, this is the castle, which is like the stash, the pawns are like the foot soldiers. How how does the pawn become the king? The pawn, no, no, king's always a king. King stays the king. You know, the pawn can become a queen, but that's not the same thing as becoming a king. King's always the king. It's so good. So, uh, but yeah, chess is a great pick, and Independence Day is excellent as well. What is your number next pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? My number next pick is also chess for a lot of the same reasons Arthur said. I just, yeah, there's so much you can do though, right? I mean, and my pick for a use of chess is kind of doing the exact opposite thing uh, as Arthur's. Uh, it's The Thing, and it is specifically uh, Kurt Russell playing computer chess. And when he loses, he dumps his booze on the computer and kills it. And I think that tells you a lot about his character very quickly. Uh, he, he is not not intellectual, but he also has no patience for problem solving. And what does that character end up doing? Every problem he finds, he finds a way to make sure he can burn it down. Uh, and I think that tells you a lot about uh, the hero of that horror film. I think it, it, it tells you a lot about that character very quickly, very efficiently. Um, and it does kind of set up the remoteness of this world uh, that, that we're, the story takes place in, this Antarctic research facility. Um, so, again, yeah, that is my next pick is also chess because, as Arthur said, I think you can do a lot of really interesting stuff there. Awesome, awesome. Uh, my next pick is the game Scaponi. Scaponi. What the hell is Scaponi? It is an ancient medieval card game in Italian that uh, is played by Jed Bartlett in The West Wing. Of he stays course. up all night teaching Charlie how to play this obscure card game. They use 40 cards in the deck. Uh, it's got different suits, so it's got uh, swords, hearts, 
coins and cups. So it's a, sort of like a mixed bag between the tarot deck and the sort of standard American. Well, I say standard American. Standard Western. Standard Western Hoyles uh, playing card, 52-card deck. And I, I don't know a whole lot about Scaponi as a game itself and how it's played. But it, it's obscurantism. Mm-hmm. It's uh, sort of just you know internationalism. It's sort of vague hoity-toityism, the fact that it's hard to learn and it's a lot of effort. And Jed does this just to spend more time with Charlie, that it's uh, an academic sort of exercise, but really it's about relationships. It tells you a lot about who Bartlett is as a character and also just the sort of weird sort of set of interests that sort of circulate around him. So Scaponi from the West Wing is my number next selection. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number second number next selection? Uh, my next pick, I don't have a single film narrowed down. I've got one in mind because it's based completely around this. Um, but it's actually the use of the Ouija board uh, in okay. horror films. Yeah, oh, yeah sure. Uh, because it's a great... Uh, anal- I mean, you can use it in so many ways. You can use it to just set up a, you know, a jump scare or set the mood. Uh, narratively, you can use it to function as an entry point for the spiritual or the supernatural to come in into, you know, release the spirits, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's just a versatile uh, uh, kind of symbol and uh, iconography that has kind of just been pretty consistent through kind of supernatural ghost stories throughout the U- years. Ubiquitous occultism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my first kind of introduction to it in film was watching uh, the original 13 Ghosts as a kid because it's kind of a little plot point there mm-hmm. uh, in that movie. But uh, going up to like Flanagan's, you know, well, Flanagan's follow-up to Ouija. Yeah. Um, there's, there's the Ouija movie and then the Ouija prequel. The, the good Ouija movie. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. I mean, well, even Hereditary earlier this year. Yeah, get a, a Ouija board deployed pretty effectively. Uh, so, and then I've been listening to the Black Tapes podcast, where there's a kind of a whole subplot following Ouija boards and dev- demon boards and things like that. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's just a great way to kind of very easily either set the tone, set the mood, set up a scare. Uh, there's a lot that you can do with it. I think it's just a very versatile piece that doesn't take a lot of effort uh and it's not so much a, a game as rather just kind of a party party game i guess is yeah. more than anything um but yeah I, I think it's usually used quite can be used quite effectively and so that's my next pick awesome i like that pick very much moving on to number uh next no number last dalton stewart what are you up for for your uh, last game pick we are going to close out on dungeons and dragons that uh the old tabletop role-playing game and again really i think it's tabletop role-playing specifically uh D gets deployed the most often just because it is the most culturally ubiquitous um, right but I, I think it's so effective and you're seeing it a lot i mean we were there are a ton of television shows that have a Dungeons and Dragons episode. Um, I specifically thought about uh, the one in Community. There's actually two. Uh, And I think what these episodes of Community do really well is show how this sort of group storytelling as game makery can really bring people together. And and I I think that is what is so effective about its use throughout television. Freaks and Geeks has another, uh, has a really notable uh, Dungeons and Dragons episode that's really, really good. Uh, But Community is the one I most specifically thought of because it's the one that tries to bring you into that world. They they do it really effectively by having like score and sound effects play uh, while gameplay is being described, but they stay at the table. There's no like visualization Mm -hmm. of the of the the magic happening it is all tight close-ups on the characters of community who are playing these characters in dungeons and dragons and watching these characters that you know really well 
play different characters tells you a lot about who they fantasize about being. Uh, Alison Brie's character, Annie, uh, ends up having this lengthy... uh, this part where she has sex with a non-player character and it just comes in this full sweeping romantic music and it cuts out all of her dialogue but you can tell by her hand motions what she's describing is extremely graphic Uh, and it's just there's a lot of little things like that and you have chevy chase's character uh pierce who decides he should have been invited to play the game when he finds out he wasn't hijacks the game and tries to kill everyone's characters and just stuff like this that tells you a lot about how these people relate to one another through the way they relate to each other in a fantasy setting so that is my final it's pick. It's a great episode. Dungeon. It's a fantastic episode. You're absolutely right, Arthur. It's that's just good TV. Um, so that is my last pick: Dungeons and Dragons. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm going to go back into an old Cecil B. DeMille picture and uh, talk about the Ten Commandments with uh, Charlton Heston. But there is a game played. Uh, oh, where... you mean Charlton Heston, famously Jewish Charlton Heston, playing yeah, Moses? Man, yeah. 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 Well, that movie's got its problems, but the, it's still. It... I just think it's honestly very funny to me. Yeah. It's it's still a great movie and a really interesting sort of time capsule of the 1950s. But there is a moment where you're learning about the Nefertiri character who is sort of a uh, – played by Ann Baxter who's uh, sort of a love interest. And then you've got the Seti character. And uh, they are playing a game called Hounds and Jackals. And uh, it's uh, basically just sort of a chase game. You've got uh, four different pieces apiece and you roll dice or in this case like these long sticks that have numbers on them apparently because you need long things for hieroglyphic number i have no idea but you play this game and you move around the table you try to capture everybody else's pieces there are rewards and there are penalties if you land in certain places is it a real game it's a real game hounds and jackals really really existed uh it's a four thousand year old egyptian game so this Damn. is some this is some period authenticity that's going on here well, uh, hey you know what Good job. Is this the equivalent of casting lots for the robes? Is this? No, I wouldn't say that because I think casting lots is just like odds and, and evens. Yeah, oh, okay. just dice. Yeah, something like Throwing that. Throwing bones. Yeah, something more along those lines. So this is a chase game, and uh, what you find in the game is the sort of uh, – you find uh, out a bit more about the pharaoh himself, Seti, mm-hmm. who is uh, a man with a lot of leisure time. And a, a man who's sort of fatherly interested in the lives of others. And also because it is just a ridiculously silly little game, um, you find out the sort of frivolousness of uh, Ann Baxter's Nefertiri and why Moses is going to lose interest later for someone with a little bit more depth. And uh, so th- all of that uh, just character information very early in the film gets condensed and communicated through watching these two play this game together. And it's like he's just doing it to take some time to be with somebody. Somebody and to be sort of fatherly, and here's my opportunity to offer some fatherly advice and sort of you know pick your brain to figure out where you're at and what you're thinking. And she is just, I'm just being silly and I'm playing, and I let you win sometimes because I think I can manipulate you then into giving me what you want, what I want, or um, I'm just you know can just fully throw myself into something that's quite frivolous and get so invested that she gets so angry um, that they end up breaking a head off of one of the pieces and it rolls to Gilbrenner's feet and that's how the scene moves. So hmm. anyway, uh, Hounds and Jackals is my number last pick. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number last selection? Uh, I think I'm going to go with Billiards. Yeah. Um, ah, the old the old pools pools balls pools balls. <laughs> I did, yeah, I yeah. What else to call it? Uh, I just love that, that you called it billiards. That, that stick and balls game. Yes, 
uh, nothing like a good old stick and balls game. That's um, right. But not the one with the bases. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, the the billiard sequence itself. If you've got a bunch of characters or a couple of characters gather around a pool table, it's a great chance to get some dialogue and maybe work in some exposition or things of that nature. Uh, but particularly, I want to talk about the hustler uh, with uh, Paul Newman and mm-hmm. Jackie Gleason, and uh, I can't think of her name. I just I saw it. Um, oh goodness, uh, she's uh, Piper Laurie. Oh, uh, Piper well. Laurie, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh man, Piper Laurie. Uh, but uh, you know, this is a movie kind of framed around a, a, a couple of pool games, and uh, you know, trying to topple a legend. But it's it's all about the human condition and the American spirit, and then you know, trying to go up against pride and, and, and uh, obsession and, and those things of that nature. Uh, and it was quite, you know, successful to, you know, critically acclaimed film, very well, uh, very good. Paul Newman's great. Uh, spawned a sequel, uh, The Color of Money yeah. with uh, uh, Tom Cruise. Um, but yeah, I, I think Billiards itself, you don't see it quite as often. You might have a throwaway scene in a bar with some characters. But Community also has a pool episode. Yeah, yep. uh, it, It's great. I also think Fresh Prince of the Bel-Air, uh, which utilized it very well. Jeffrey uh, Breakout Lucille. Yeah, I love that moment. It's a so great, much. it's a great episode yeah. of that of that show. It's just the cool, pool is cool. Yeah, it is. It's it's I love it. Cool. I'm not good at it, but I love playing it. Same. And I, I think you're right. I think it's a, a very effective way to be like, hey, look at these cool cats. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's what I'm going to end with, I think. Pool is a great way to end. I like that game a lot. So uh, there you go, dear listener. Those are our selections for cinematic uh, storytelling devices using games. Uh, that that might be the best way to name. Yeah, we got there. This, this is a very meta game this what, week. It was a game about the game games. We had <laughs> so uh, there you go. If you've got any selections that you would like to suggest to games us. Games of chance and skill. Yes. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> no, I was doing that. Uh, yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm not proud of myself in this moment right now. Uh, All right. Well, that's the thing that happened. Um, after this, though, what's going to happen is we're going to get down to business. Where have all the good men gone and where... Oh, you look... Okay, hey. Oh, hey, buddy. Hey, no, Arthur left me. I thought he was going to hang in with me. Okay, that was a strange... You need a hero. <sighs> well, I'm holding out for one. All right. Now it's time for the show proper, I guess. <laughs> let's do it now. The analysis. show is never proper. Let, nope. Let, let's talk spoilers. Let's just open up with that because okay. I tell you a real narrative problem with this film is that unless you know The Departed... And unless you know Infernal Affairs, it seems and feels to me as though the major plot twist is too buried. It comes completely it, out of nowhere. Yeah, it feels it feels like it's there just to have that twist because it happened in The Departed and Infernal Affairs or whatever. So for those of you who decide to skip Revenge of the Dream, Green Dragons and are wondering what the hell we're talking about, uh, so throughout the film, as the Green Dragons are re- wreaking havoc uh, in New York, uh, there is a cop. Uh, whose name I have lost, um, but this detective um, is also an Asian-American, and he is uh, trying his best to police the Green Dragons despite the fact that uh, none of the hierarchy gives a shit because no white people are getting killed. Um, And it turns out that he's been a crooked cop this whole time, and he kills Sonny, um, our hero character, right, as Sonny is going to get revenge on Paul, the guy that made him and his best friend become gangsters. Yeah, uh, pretty much that, yeah. And we find out that this detective's been a little bit crooked, or maybe a lot of bit crooked, the entire movie. Yeah, he's been a mole the entire time. And, yeah. Uh, again, very much the Matt Damon character from um, The Departed. Yeah. And, but no, 
because there is no indication whatsoever. Yeah, I it's mean, way too buried. He's trying to be a good cop the whole movie. The whole movie. There's no hint. There's no. I, you, you know. You never have a reason to doubt him. There are a lot of characters in this film you can doubt. He's not one of them. But here is my question: How can you make that mistake? Well, this is unless all... you make it on purpose. I think it's so. I mean, it's because it's there to just do it. It's not there to be. I mean, I don't think they. It, it has any narrative sense. It's just to have a cool twist ending. I, I think it's to say, you know, guys like Paul don't lose. I mean, power structures don't lose. You, yeah. you, you can't defeat a power structure. And I yeah. think that's all it gives us. And I, I get what it's going for. And I, I, again, Dustin, as your review, I see the things that you think are kind of interesting in this movie. I just think they're all so haphazard. Yeah. I yeah. don't give a shit about any of them. Like, I like Steve, you know, becoming this kind of bad boy and getting to see him going from not a bad boy to the worst boy is kind of a cool arc to see. But yeah. it's not portrayed very interestingly. And just like this twist isn't portrayed interestingly. If it, uh, I think it's just the if it had been maybe a different character that pulls it off, or mm-hmm. you know, it just it doesn't make sense that it's uh, the the detective. It makes more sense for it to be, I don't know, Ray Liotta almost or Snakehead, or, yeah, 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 even something like that. Yeah, if she were to just be following, like I yeah. got you now, sucker. Yeah, yeah. But I, I don't know. I, it just because cinema itself is so intentional because it is so planned out because mm-hmm. we are talking about heavy hitters and heavy hitters money and a big studio that's not big at this point but is definitely coming out that way looking to produce a certain kind of product uh, in terms of turning into uh, doing in-house production Martin Scorsese doing production work and all of that and this and this person who has written a film that has a great twist ending that is really well written that the twist itself works very well in infernal affairs all of that and then to have this thing happen I, again, I, I don't know so much, you know, is it a commentary? What is it actually doing? Are all those sort of questions sort of swirl around in my head? I don't know what the actual net result is, but I begin to suspect when I begin to look on paper at well, what I'm dealing with, like, this is not just somebody screwed up. This is not somebody just being haphazard and just throwing whatever against the wall. The, 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 this is a choice. I don't know what the motivation is, but I have to think, no, you 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 meant for this to happen. Well, and I think it's the same way with Tina, uh, the character of Tina, who you know is subject to this this horrible yes. thing that we're not going to talk about. Uh, well, I guess it's a know, rape. Uh, well, I was going to go ahead and prep the listener that oh. we're about to talk about something they might not want to hear us talk about. Uh-huh. So, but yeah, old old guys just don't know how to. How to be nice. Well, I mean, that is I mean, our, with different generation. We're, yeah. we're talking about a person yeah, being raped. That's how you give the trigger warning, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, I, I was going to I was I soften the massage of the audience up. But yeah, there's this, this horrific gang rape that happens primarily off screen. But enough happens on screen that I was like, I'm going to go ahead and fast forward about 15 seconds. Yeah. I don't want to see this shit. This is, I don't need this in my life right now. Um, and then the, you know what that character's ending is? She gets murdered by a kid and i get what they're saying they're saying you were the same kid you don't you think that this has gotten bad it's always been bad when you were kids and we taught you to be hard boys this is how we were teaching you to be hard was to kill people who had talked and no matter what they had talked about i get what they're going for but all that does is create this character of tina who lives purely to serve for sunny to realize that he's been a bad guy mm-hmm. this is a character that lao and lou have get murdered raped and murdered only so we, Sonny can learn something. And that's fucked up. Yeah. And I get what he's trying to teach us is that, no, being a gangster is not cool. Yeah, I get that. You don't need to use this to tell me that. Right. And that's why when Steven gets stabbed to death, I don't really care. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, and I, I should have been sad when Steven died. Like, no. that should be a tragic moment. It's definitely not. Not even a little bit. Yeah, and I they think all it, suck, yeah. And I think these, this all comes back to the problem you're talking about with the ending. I, there is, you're right, an architecture to it. There is a blueprint that exists. There are intentional choices being made. They're just being made poorly. Yeah. I, again, I, I just... I, I feel like I'm missing something. I, I I want to give this film some credit that maybe it doesn't deserve. I think you do. And 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 I'm just I I, I wanted, but as you say though, the female characters in this film are terrible. I mean, so we've got our we've got our victim, our damsel in distress. We've got um, our our dragon lady who's called Snakehead. Snakehead I, Mama is how she's credited. Snake. Eugenia Yon, but is she is the, is the actress doing the trope of the and, dragon lady. But she's so great. Hard. She's a great performance. I, I like. Where her character arc goes, right? Yeah. Her victory is being arrested as an American citizen. Yeah. That's her victory. Because she got rights. And it's it's super interesting. But there's not enough there. I'm with Arthur. That's the more interesting movie. I want to see the movie about that character. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Because she's she is is so committed to trying yeah. to get these kids to America and give them a good life that she's going to make that good life being gangsters because – that's how it gets done. Yeah. Because she understands that the country they're coming to was built on violence, and that's how you get ahead in this this country. I, it's fucked up and interesting. I just figured out how this movie's broke. It's The Departed without Jack Nicholson. There's not an evil, a character of pure evil? Well, Jack Nicholson is the mastermind, you know, sort of interesting, c- conflicted. Because uh, Jack Nicholson is, is trying to make it, and you know. And, and, it's The Departed if Jack Nicholson shows up twice. Yeah. That's yeah, a good point. Way to put it. Yeah, barely any Jack Nicholson. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, that character, Frank. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. Just pull Frank out, and it's like, what's going on? Yeah, and then they give that all that stuff screen time to you know the right hand man, Paul, in this case, which in that movie would be like, God, I don't even know Ray Winston. Ray Winston's character. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly yeah. yeah, and that's a less interesting movie. Yeah, by far. Yeah, that that something going on there. But again, this sort of meta you know fit, meta film discussion that we're having about mm-hmm. the, the film is based off of or following, and yeah, like th- this is one of those rare instances where the conversation about the movie is about the movies that preceded it. Mm-hmm. And with the Infernal Affairs, we talked about this last week. There's that real cultural specificity of Hong Kong in, in mm-hmm. the late mid to late '90s, right before the handover from the British to mainland China. Um, all this Buddhist specificity that you know, all this really cool cultural context we get in Infernal Affairs. We don't really get any here. And I, I'm not saying that someone from Hong Kong can't make a movie about the Asian American experience. I'm saying it's going to be a lot harder, probably. Just like it would be hard for somebody who is an Asian American, you know, first, second, or even third generation to make a movie about Hong Kong. Well, they could probably do it. If you're not an immigrant, hard. it's hard for you to tell that story. Right. Exactly. And, you know, it's just they're. There's something lacking there in taking the immigrant story seriously, I think. I think Andrew Liu and Andrew Lauer are interested in it, and I think they're like, this This is an interesting world to set this gangland melodrama, but it's a story that I think deserves care and attention that this movie doesn't – it's not that they don't take it seriously. I think they don't understand why what they're doing is kind of taking the piss a little bit. Does yeah. that make sense? Absolutely does. We know we got a little wide-ranging a moment ago. Yeah, sorry. We, we were working our way through the female characters. I also want to just mention the mother of – uh, Sonny, who is um, sort of the forced adopted mother mm-hmm. of Stephen, and uh, in in that role, she is what? I mean, how? What? what it's, it's the other way around. Okay. Stephen's her son. Stephen's her son, and, and Sonny's the adopted. One. Yeah, correct. Sorry. Yeah. But the point being, yeah. um, this character is weak, ineffectual, and um, unimportant. Like as soon as they leave, she's gone. She's got maybe she, the only other important scene she has is seeing her son commit a murder. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, and you're absolutely right. That's another female character that gets underserved. And that's a great moment between um, Snakehead Mama saying, you're going to take care of this kid, and if something happens to him, I'm coming for you. Right. And she has an interesting moment, the the actress that plays Stephen's mother, and then she has a couple of moments where she does get to do some real acting, but it's just with her face. She doesn't get a lot of dialogue. Yeah. She doesn't have a lot of agency. It's, and again, none of the performances here are bad. It's just the characters are underserved by the screenplay, I think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? I don't know. There's not a whole lot I have to talk about with this movie. I, well, I, and I, I think we've just kind of jumped around because there's yeah. a lot of... I, you you say, Dustin, that you don't think this film is just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. I, I would say what's probably more accurate is it's throwing darts at a board and saying, oh, that's a thing we can talk about. And there's no, no. not a cohesion to the, the stories it wants to tell for me. I mean, the big stuff is racism mm-hmm. and immigration. Those are the yeah. two big – and human trafficking, yeah. I mean, primarily uh, getting people to – getting these, you know, uh, less fortunate you yeah. know, people to the states to try to make a life for themselves. That's that's kind of the thing, trying to find the American dream. Mm-hmm. And that American dream is shrouded in drugs and money and blood. Yeah, yeah. Well, and vi- just violence. It, and uh, yeah. I, I like – I do like bringing up that – um, as she does in this one scene, I think it's actually with Ray Liotta. That's either with Ray Liotta or Paul, uh, the, the, that character, uh, where she talks about like this is a violent country. Like they're, they're never gonna like you're gonna have to fight and kill for what you want because that's what they did. That's what the people in charge did. And I think that the, the dynamics interesting. I also, as you mentioned, racism. I think Ray Liotta is interesting because he's like this kind of gross, pragmatic racist. Yeah, he doesn't really have any racial animosity. He's just a xenophobe yeah. because he knows that situations where there is social chaos create an opportunity for crime. And so that's kind of interesting, but we don't really get a lot with him either. We don't get to spend a lot of time with that character. Um, and, and it's just all of this this list of checkboxes where it's like, that's kind of an interesting thing to name check and then not really tease it out. Yeah, that's probably fair. Same with the Tiananmen Square thing that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, I, I really scene. wanted more about that because I wanted this whole conversation about what does it mean to be free, what does it mean to have rights, mm-hmm. sort of get yourself out, the, out from under the thumb of a dictatorship. Like, there's a lot of great parallels to sort of this forced life into either the slave work, uh, working at the Chinese restaurant washing dishes that uh, they get for their immigration situation, or to be, uh, you know, the, the, the working with the gangsters. It's, it's both in. And, and what would make you stand in front of a tank? That's a great idea. And nothing ever happens with it. And I think trauma gets played with here in interesting ways. I, I think showing us, as Dustin mentioned, you know, Sonny and Steven getting really abused by this gang when they get kind of jumped in, I think is an important touchstone. It is important to show us that this gang operates on cycles of trauma yeah. and hurting people so that they have the capacity to hurt other people. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. But again, I don't know that how much it's, it's played with so melodramatically that we don't really get any time to kind of sit with that and think about it and, and think about the trauma that these kids have undergone to become these kind of deeply disturbed young men. Uh, especially, you know, when, when Steven's character gets shot, I think that inter- that sequence is really interesting where, you know, he's in the hospital and then he comes back. And as soon as he gets out of the hospital, he is this like infinitely scarier guy. Yeah. And I, I think it's a really interesting character moment, but I don't think it carries. It's one of the few moments in the movie that I was like, okay, this is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It's one of the few things for me that really, really works uh, is as soon as he gets out of the hospital, he has that showdown with the guy that pulls the gun on him. Yeah. And it's like th- this moment of this, this kind of cocky kid with a gun putting a gun on a guy that uh, does not have anything to live for. Yeah. There's this rich kid who's like the son of like some more established gangster. Yeah. And I, I like that moment because mm-hmm. it's this idea that like 
the people who are most willing to survive in this world are the people who have survived the worst things. Right. And uh, it, it's interesting, but it doesn't really do a whole lot with that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, the, the, it, it, this is one of those just unmet potential kind of moments, you know, mm-hmm. in cinema. But that being said, uh, it is very much a, a, a genre movie, like, without any gloss. It, it is it is sort of the opposite of what we do because again I have to I have to still keep thinking that Andy Lau is making a genre movie. This is absolutely a genre movie and it is not that sort of elevated, you know, like Scorsese. He was actually quoted as saying that. Okay. He was actually quoted as saying that this is a genre movie. We just kind of little put a little sheen on it because of Scorsese's name. And I, I see that. I see that he's going for that. That context is interesting. I just don't know that it's successful as it is. Yeah, I don't think it is. Yeah. yeah. I think it just fails. Mm-hmm. It, it misses all of its targets. I think. Well, I guess in this case, we probably just got to go ahead and render a verdict about this film. So what do you guys say? Show for trash. Elsewhere instead, I go to you first, Arthur. What say you? I'm going to trash it. I, I don't, I don't think blame you. You have to watch this one. Uh, there's a lot of better films, a lot of better crime films, a lot of better Asian cinema. Uh, so I don't I don't think you need to watch this one uh, at all. Uh, instead of this film, I'd go ahead and say uh, one we talked about recently, Boys in the Hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of chronically that, 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 you know, a couple of guys rising up in this kind of similar dynamic. Uh, I'd say Goodfellas, uh, which I think this closely resembles, especially the character arc of, of you know, Stephen and, and Sonny and trying to get into the or being in the gang and then, you know, Stephen kind of gets made, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, much like uh, Pesci does in Goodfellas. Uh, and then I'd say American Gangster as well with Denzel. Nice I think that one also pairs well with this as well and kind of a similar, right, kind of predates it by about a decade because that's set in the mm-hmm. 70s and, and kind of in New York right before we get into this era. Yeah. So I think that kind of uh, uh, would work uh, instead of this. All right. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Uh, show for trash, else or instead? Yeah, it's trash. Uh, I, I cannot recommend anybody watch this movie. I really can't. Uh, what should you watch instead? Three films that I think do all the things that this was trying to go for way better. Uh, first, we're going to start with The Warriors, which is the genre film that I alluded to earlier, which is a genre film about street gangs. It takes all – it, it is, is set almost in this other world, and I think that allows – us to have that genre element of these street gangs. I think that's what Revenge of the Green Dragon's missing. It's very clearly set in quote in large quotes the real world. And I think that step of remove, that kind of that fantastical fantasy element that the Warriors has, this kind of like weird bedtime fable thing that they're going for, I think is what really allows the Warriors mm-hmm. to be so successful and to have a movie that's just about gangs fighting each other. Um by Making New York this kind of – well, by being 70s New York, by being this otherworldly place, it, it kind of allows them to have more genre play without it feeling quite so gross. So I'm going to say The Warriors, a uh, better film about immigration, Girlhood uh, from yeah. France that we've actually done on this show, which I think does a lot more interesting things about the ways in which crime squeezes people um, who have less opportunities. And I, I think that's a much better and more interesting tale. Uh, and finally, violence and trauma. I'm going to go with Lynn Ramsey's You Were Never Really Here, which I just finally caught up with. And I... Two weeks in a row! Love this movie, Arthur. This movie is great. I liked it a lot. And I can see why you have been preaching it uh, so so powerfully. Because, yeah, all these interesting things that this movie kind of almost does with uh, the way traumatized people deal with violence... 
you are never really there does so much more successfully and powerfully. So those are going to be my insteads of revenge of the green dragons. I am also going to say trash. Wow. I don't like it. It's not, I mean, you know, no, it's not fun. Yeah. I think they're up to something and I'm giving them a little bit more rope, but I think they're probably just hanging themselves with said rope in this case. Um, so what should you watch instead? I'm recommending two French films actually about immigration. One of them is the film welcome from 2009, which won the, uh, best picture or the, uh, French version of Best Picture at the Lumieres uh, that year, and it's about a uh, Irani Iraqi um, immigrant and trying to get to uh, the UK and is stuck in France and trying to find a way into life and through life and perhaps still try to find a way there. So it is a much more interesting uh, dealing with the uh, refugee slash uh, immigrant experience. And also I want to recommend a genre film that does the same kind of thing. And I've talked about this movie on the show before. It is D-Pan, D-H-E-E-P-A-N, which is indeed uh, taken with a Sri Lankan former Tamil tiger who's working as a custodian in an apartment complex and uh, at one point enough is enough and he makes people's lives and there is a, a, a plot contrivance early in the film that is very much like that moment where they assign a child to a family he is assigned a family that is not his family as well and so that's part of what's going okay. on in D-Pan and it is a great movie I mean it is really really solid D-Pan is actually streaming on Netflix right now Welcome is relatively available also via some of those sort of like quote-unquote free services like uh, your Tubi TVs and your Crackles and whatnot. Okay. But uh, I recommend them both really, really highly if you're interested in that immigrant experience, uh, Sri Lankan in one case and uh, Middle Eastern in the other. So uh, those are our recommends, guys. That's it. All right. Well, uh, we want to do this one more time. No, I'm out. Uh, Well, I guess that's it. Six years is up. We're done. Peace. See you. You you, you pulled a stinker, guys, and I'm done. Oh, wait. wait what's the, hang Hold on. on. When does this drop? This drops. So so our next episode actually is probably our six-year anniversary. I, mean, I think that's yeah. the one. I wow. guess so, yeah. Well, uh, oh, wait. hey, what if we keep you going for a few more weeks and we get to Shocktober and we let you watch Italian movies in, in uh, October? Ooh, I'm in. Okay. We just got to get through Shocktober. We just got to keep teasing them. Shocktober, like, really rejuvenates them and then gets them through about another year. Really that's helps. really what happens. It, it really is restorative. We might, th- we might sprinkle some more horror in through the year just to keep him going. He's going to keep doing this bit. Yeah. Listeners are going to think he's not kidding is the yeah. thing. You and I know he's kidding. He'll never admit he's kidding. I don't know if he's kidding. I think he's kidding. <laughs> I think he's know. kidding. Well, next week we are going to do a very dumb movie that I'm very excited to talk oh, about. Oh, it's a blast. Arthur? Uh, yeah, next week. Uh, we, uh, you know, it was before they were famous, uh, when we uh, watched the 2002 mm-hmm. uh, action post-apocalyptic medieval film uh, Reign of Fire with uh, the great Christian Bale, the Lord uh, Matthew McConaughey, and uh, Gerard Butler. Yeah, it's actually listed as a science fiction film. You've got your, I guess, you've got your dragons. Dis- you've got your distant dad, your hot dad, and your drunk dad. <laughs> it's like Thanksgiving. I nailed it. All right. Well, there you go. We're going to do that next. Um, I guess. Wait. Say. Wait. So McConaughey's your hot dad. Hot dad. Christian Bale's your distant dad. Distant that you're dad. trying to like approve okay. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Gerard Butler's your drunk, drunk dad. dad. Obviously. Yeah. Of course. Or Bale. I mean, those are... I think Bale's the distant one. You I think, think so? I think... I mean, they both might, might both be your drunk dad, but... Gerard Butler's the cool one that shows up on the weekend and exactly. takes... Exactly. <laughs> He's the one that shows up a little bit drunk and takes you to a baseball game. Christian Bale's the one that's always home and a little bit drunk, and you're trying to convince him to, to, to look at your look painting. Look at me, dad. I'm diving. Look at my painting. Look at my dive. Dad, yeah. look.
Look at this cannonball. Hey, Dad, I can do a cartwheel. <laughs> yeah. Look what I can do. Yeah. Uh, so there you go. Uh, we're going to keep doing this thing at least one more week looking at Reign of Fire. Take a look at that. Maybe watch Revenge of the Dragons or something we suggested instead. And But always make sure you're having a conversation with people you care about because that's what makes it so worthwhile. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, a product of Good Trash Media. For Gord, for more Good Trash content, head over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro music is, as always, an original composition by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers. And our outro is The Promised Land by Carl Restivo featuring Tom Morello. <laughs>